antiquarian adventures in better reality. The Cave, the Fugu and the Void, Episode 2. In Episode 1 we explored the idea that the cave is far more than just a hole in the ground. In Episode 2 we will be exploring the mysteries of the Fugu. Now the Fugu is a peculiarly Cornish prehistoric megalithic structure. It consists of a short blind tunnel just beneath the surface of the land. Now little is known about these enigmatic artificial caves. But far from just leading to a dead end, they're the entrance to a vast conceptual labyrinth. I remember my first encounter with the Fugu was in the 1980s when I met old Joe O'Cleary who lived in a wooden hut in the woods in the Mourner Valley. One night we crept around the back of the manor house at the head of the valley into the old Fugu that lay in its grounds. In the darkness of the garden behind the house we slipped down what seemed to be a portal formed of an even deeper darkness. And there we sat consumed in this earthy embrace and only the sound of our breath pierced the intense silence of the Fugu. It was in this Fugu the local legend told that the old lord of the manor, Squire Lovell, stumbled upon a coven of witches and there he heard the devil's secret name. Duffy and the devil. It was cider-making time, and Squire Lovell of Trove was out riding through Burian Church Town. On hearing a commotion, he rode over to investigate, only to find that Jenny Tregwidden was once again setting about her good-for-nothing stepdaughter, Duffy. The old squire happened to be on the lookout for a hired hands, so taking pity on the girl and being a sucker for a pretty face, he decided to take her into service in the manor house. Duffy protested that she was hard-working and skilled at household chores, but as she rode away with the old squire, her old stepmother, somewhat prophetically, called after her, Go thee ways with the old bucker and good riddance to bad rummage. Duffy was duly taken to the manor and ushered up to the garret where she would be set to work by the old one-eyed housekeeper. It was said she had lost her eye as a result of peering into the spirit world, but that's another story. The garret was stacked floor to key beam with fleeces. Duffy looked on this with despair for, of course, she could neither spin nor knit a stitch. Kicking the nearest bale, she cried, Curse this knitting and spinning! The devil may spin and knit for the squire for all I care! 
Within a moment, the darkness behind the wool packs in the corner began to congeal into a solid form, and from the shadow stepped a swarthy figure with burning eyes, who, without so much as an introduction, announced, I shall do all the spinning and knitting for thee. In those days, folk were much more used to dealing with the devil, especially women, and in consequence of this, they were much less likely to be surprised or afeared. All I ask is that in payment at the end of three years, you come away with me, unless after three askings, you can tell me my true name. This sounded a peculiar bargain, thought Duffy. The devil added, and betwixt now and then, good fortune shall be yours and a lady you shall be. The deal was struck. He took the measure of her foot to seal the bargain, and as he left, the devil informed her that all she required would be found under the black ram's fleece. And so, according to his word, beneath the black ram's fleece there appeared a pile of the finest knitted stockings that she had ever seen. These she presented to the old squire. They were as fine as silk and as strong as leather, even after a day in the briars and furs, in the worst weather that the extremity of Cornwall could throw at him, he returned home warm and dry and without a single scratch. The old squire was overjoyed. Every day Duffy just idled in such a way as only professed idlers can do, and every day fresh supplies of stockings, clothing, bedding and ornamental work appeared as if by magic from under the black ram's fleece. Before long, Duffy was sought after by all the young blades in the district. The old squire, fearing the loss of his newfound asset, decided to wed her, Thus, according to the custom of that time and place, she became Lady Lovell. Now, one of Duffy's favoured places of idling was down at the mill, where all the gossips gathered to grind their grist. There, there was always dancing, laughter and a dram to be shared. The old miller's wife, Old Bet, was by all accounts a witch and well-versed in the arts. She noticed that all the stockings were left unfinished with a stitch down and she also recognised the devil's handiwork when she saw it. Old Bet said nothing. Time rolled on and eventually the three years was grinding to a close. Duffy remembered her bargain and was no nearer to guessing her mysterious benefactor's name than she was when they first met. A deep melancholia began to overcome her and eventually all began to spill out and she unburdened her heart to Old Bet. Old Bet was expecting this and was prepared. She requested that Duffy bring her a jack of the squire's finest beer from his cellars. When this was done, Duffy was to return home and await the squire to come home from hunting, however late this was, and when he returned, whatever he told her, she must remain poker-faced. So, off went Duffy and spirited away a jack of the squire's finest beer. This she passed on to old Bet, and old Bet put on her red shawl, picked up her crowdy drum, slung the jack over her shoulder and set off over Belay, past the pipers and the daunt's main stone circle and up onto the moors. Duffy returned home and sat by the hearth and waited and waited. The midnight bell had struck and the old squire had still not returned.
Then, one by one, his dogs returned, lips thick with foam and tongues lolling as if the very hounds of hell had been on their tails. Then, in the early hours, the door burst open and in shambles the old squire, neither drunk nor frightened, but cracked brained and mazed as an adder, singing at the top of his voice, ears to the devil with his wooden pick and shovel, digging tin by the bushel with his tail cocked up. After the old squire had sat down and gathered both his breath and his senses, he began to recount this tale. All day he had hunted from Trove to Trevida and found not a thing. And then, just as dusk was falling, he put up the finest hair you have ever seen up by the old stone circle. No matter how the dogs closed in on her, she seemed always just beyond their grasp. So down they went, past the pipers, down the reen, and down to the mouth of the old fugu hole. So in they all went. The squire, dogs, hair and all. He swore the tunnel was normally not that long but tonight they seemed to go along for about a mile into the darkness. Eventually they reached a broad lake. Here the dogs lost both their scent and their nerve and turned tail and ran. He stayed hidden behind a rock and on the far side he could see the glow of a fire and about it was a host of St Levin witches flying about on broomsticks, ragwort stalks, three-legged stools and giant leeks fresh back from their milk-stealing missions in Wales. And who should be there amongst them but old Bet, with one of Squire Lovell's own black jacks slung on her back. She was playing the crowdy and the whole crowd were chanting, Here's to the devil with his wooden pick and shovel. Round and round the witches danced and round and round the chant went in his head. Then, at their very centre, up stands this peculiar looking fellow with hooves, horns and burning eyes. Each time he passes old Bet in their wild dance, he takes a good pull on the jack of beer till it was all gone. Then up he stands and proclaims, I have knit and spun for her three years to the day. Tomorrow she will ride with me over the land, over the sea, far away, far away. For she can never know that my name is Taraway. The whole crew then erupted into an even wilder dance, witches, flame and shadows being hardly distinguished from one another. Hardly able to contain himself, up stands the old squire and shouts, Go to it, old Nick! Then, in an instant, all was in darkness. All around him were fluttering forms. So off the squire ran like a thing possessed, groping his way out of the fugu and back into the night. Duffy leaned back on the settle. Her poker face cracked and a deep belly laugh welled up and off they went to bed. Three years to the day had passed and on the appointed hour, Duffy stood in the garret. Sure enough, the shadow began to form once again and there he stood, all hoof and horns and shimmering darkness. Come, my dear, says he, I have been good to my word and now you must be good to yours. Ah, says Duffy, do you not recall our bargain in full, Mr Lucifer? The old bucker laughed. Lucifer, he exclaimed, is but a poor cousin. You need to try harder than that. Duffy stood for a moment and then blurted out, 
Then you must be Beelzebub. The old bucker once again erupted in laughter. Beelzebub is but a minor devil compared to me. Duffy stood again, savouring the moment. Then, you must be Taraway. The room fell silent and the old bucker froze. Then, with a note of resignation in his voice, says the devil, I am proud of my ancient name and it cannot be denied. I must confess that I did not expect to be outwitted by a minx like you, but each of us must embrace their destiny. But I feel the pleasure of your company is but postponed. And in an instant, he was gone. Duffy was left alone with the old squire. The fine stockings began to unravel and fall apart, leaving, at one time, the old squire clad only in his shirt, shoes and hat on the open moors. Arguments and unhappiness followed. The squire blamed the witchery of old Bet for their change in fortune. But as Robert Hunt, who collected the tale in West Cornwall in the mid-19th century, recounts, peace was procured by a stratagem of old Bet, which would rather shock the sense of propriety in these our days. Of what this was, we can but imagine. But it was also said that for many years to come, Duffy, in her idle wanderings, would often linger at the mouth of the fugu and listen for the strains of songs and dancing and peer into the darkness looking for the gentle glow of the distant Sabbath fires fanned by the perfumed winds of the spirit world. Until, with the passing of the years, both memory and desire faded, bringing a kind of solace. Or maybe old Bet taught young Duffy the art of entering the fugu dark and to dance about the eternal fire that burned beyond the lake. In many folk tales, as in our real lives, often there is no clear end to the story. Several years later, on the eve of the devastating 1987 storms, I was working on the trees near the Trelawarren estate. I remember hammering in stakes from dawn till dusk until my hands locked into immobile claws. Each evening, using mugs of hot coffee, I would tease them back to life. One day an old estate worker came and told us of a cave above the fields in which we were working. On the last day of the job, we went to investigate. Battling through the undergrowth, we found some steps going down into a subterranean entrance. Later, I was to discover this was Heligi Fugu in the grounds of the Trelawarren estate. As we entered, my boss sternly warned me not to do any of my weird pagan stuff and then inexplicably pulled out a heavy brass candelabra from his kit bag and lit the darkness. Once again, I felt that familiar, deep, chthonic peace of the land permeate my being. Since then, my encounters with the Fugus of Cornwall have been many and varied. My closest acquaintance has been with the Fugus of the village of Constantine. I use the plural because there are indeed two. In addition to the well-documented Piskis Hall Fugu is another hidden in the overgrown Glebe Gardens. I once mentioned this to the then Cornwall Archaeology Unit, 
to which I was politely but firmly informed that there was no such fugu. Now it's built in an identical manner to the Piskis hole, with straight dry stone walls and huge parallel recumbent slabs forming the roof. It disappears a short distance into a steep bank, terminating into a small chamber formed by massive granite orthostats. There seems to be little local interest in it. Some say it's an old mine addict, but in the absence of a nearby mine and its immovable termination, this seems unlikely. It seems to have attracted the usual secret tunnel stories. In the 1990s, one girl from the village told a tale that once she and some friends attempted to see if they could break through at the slab at the rear of the chamber. The tapping of their hammers was eerily met with a corresponding tap coming from the other side. The excavation was quickly abandoned. To me, the Piskis Hall has always held an aura of mystery. Perched on a rise over Bazaine Woods, looking towards the north of the parish, where the Cyclopean Tolman Stone once stood. Although it's situated in an open field next to the road, it's notoriously difficult to find. It is also, as its name suggests, renowned for its otherworldly activity. Now, Evans Wentz in 1911 produced the book The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries, where he travelled through all the Celtic countries, including Cornwall, in search of fairy sightings, and he actually passed through Constantine and of the Piskis Hall Fugu, he says. He actually spoke to um, a local informant by the name of John Wilmet. This must have been at the turn of the last century. He calls it not the Piskis Hall, but the Piskis House. And of this, he says, William Murphy, who was married to my sister, once went to the Piskis House at Bazaine with a surveyor. And the two of them heard such an unearthly noise in it that they came running home in great excitement, saying they had heard the Piskis. Presumably this was just uh, one account in many. Now the the farm on which it um, stands, Bazaine, is interesting name. Maybe the name Bazaine is derived from the old Cornish meaning holy house or sacred house. Again, once in the 1990s I visited the Fuga with a friend who herself was of a particularly fey disposition. On entering the Fugu, she instantly informed me that they had been active here. On inquiring as to who they might be, she just replied, them, and pointed to a perfectly formed bare human footprint, all of three inches long in the mud. Some years later, I sat with a group of friends in the chamber of the Fugu to await the setting of the winter solstice sun. At this time of year, it's rare for both the fields and the sky to be clear. But this particular year, the gods blessed us with an open view to the southwest. After what seemed to be an age, squatting in the dark earth with the great stones of the Fugu walls at our back, 
the sun set over the corner of the field, sending a shaft of golden light piercing the entrance of the fugu and illuminating the chamber. For a moment, the mysteries of the undying sun and the slumbering earth were united. The Fugus were the last in the line of the great prehistoric megalithic monuments to be built. As the sun set on the darkest day through the Fugu door long ago, one cannot help but think that the ancient people who built the Fugu knew that it was the dawn of a new age in which we were becoming slaves to the field of battle and the fields of agriculture. Maybe somewhere deep in our ancestral memory was a yearning for the caves of the Paleolithic Age where the gods and the spirits still spoke to us as we began our journey away from Eden. Maybe the Fugu was a shrine to the memory of this cultural womb from whence we came. Or maybe they embodied an even deeper mystery. The ancient Celts believed that at the heart of the physical world was a noon. Some describe this as being the underworld. Others, of a more philosophical persuasion, have described it as being the embodiment of absolute negation and otherness. The Epicureans taught that the world of matter was constructed from the solid building blocks of atoms. And Aristotle told us that nature abhors a vacuum. But post-Einstein, both of these mainstays of the Western worldview have fallen apart. Within what we thought were solid atoms, all we have found is a great yawning emptiness. It appears we got it the wrong way round. Nature abhors solid mass. In fact, the very existence of solid mass has become something of a puzzle to modern physics. And moreover, all that we thought to be solid matter turns out to be but a shimmering mirage on the face of the void. A dance of subatomic particles spontaneously coming and going in and out of existence.
much ink has been spilled on the discourses on the construction and orientation of the fugu and what once lay within. But maybe this is missing the point. When one crawls down from the upper world and descends into the darkness of the fugu, one loses awareness of the stones of the chamber and the landscape around. One enters the liminality of Anun. A veil recedes and the true nature of the fugu is made evident. The true fugu is not the stones that encase it, but the space and the darkness within. The fugu is the darkness. As one surrenders to the living shadow of the chamber, one is consumed by something more profound than just the absence of light. One glimpses the incomprehensible fifth dimension that lays beyond the fragile veil of being. That space which is both nothing and everything. To lose oneself in the fugu is to participate in this great paradox that at the heart of being is a noon, absence, the void.
was a quarry studio production made in a secret location in a quarry somewhere in West Cornwall. Words, music, sounds and production, Steve Patterson. Engineering, editing, production and additional voice, Dave Wisdom. Additional voice, website design and brainwaves, Lisa Wisdom. If you want to support us, you can do so on patreon.com slash antiquarian adventures in metareality. For further information, look us up on stevepattersonantiquarian.com. We look forward to joining you for further antiquarian Antiquarian adventures in meta-reality.